Well, good evening to you all as we're gathered here to continue this lovely and fitting journey through the Lenten season. Tonight's service marks the third week of Lent, although this is only our second Lenten service, as unfortunately the weather delayed our second Lenten service. So this evening, I want to spend a brief period of time examining, examining some of these broader Lenten themes, some broader themes of the Lenten journey, and then we will turn to looking at our actual texts for the evening, Joel chapter 2. So we'll examine some broader Lenten themes, and then we will dig into the text of Joel chapter 2. And I mentioned that this Lenten season is a journey, and I did not pick that word arbitrarily or haphazardly. Lent is indeed a journey. It's a journey into what the Eastern Orthodox Church has for centuries called the bright sadness of the Christian life. It's beautiful terminology. The Eastern Orthodox Church is called the Lenten season, the bright sadness of the Christian life. One of those beautiful paradoxes. Here in Lent, we Christians are to remember that we are sojourners, that we're pilgrim people. We're like Odysseus, setting out on a journey. Only our destination is far greater than Ithaca. The great Eastern Orthodox theologian, a modern theologian by the name of Alexander Schmemann, he wrote that when a man leaves on a journey, he must know where he is going. Thus with Lent. Above all, Lent is a spiritual journey and its destination is Easter. Lent is a spiritual journey and its destination is Easter. Lent then, it's this season where we hyper-focus on a pattern that each and every week we already should be seeing. So Lent, we hyper-focus on a pattern that weekly is engraved into the creational pattern that we should already be seeing. And once we recover that sacramental vision that we talked about on Sunday, we'll start to see this pattern. That is this pattern. Monday through Saturday are always miniature Lenten days. Monday through Saturday, always throughout the entire year, are miniature Lenten days. They are days of absence and negation. Absence and negation as we await what it is that we were truly made for. We are creatures who are made for communal table fellowship with the triune God. That is to say, we are creatures that were made for Sunday. So Monday through Saturday, those are Lenten days. We are made for Sundays. And each Sunday then is resurrection or Easter Sunday. For we come together dying to self and are corporately fashioned together as the body of the resurrected and now ascended Lord. Lent, says the 5th century church father, Caesarius of Arles. He says, Lent signifies the life of the present world, just as Easter prefigures eternal bliss. Lent signifies the life of this present world. Easter prefigures eternal bliss. So Lent is Monday through Saturday. Easter is Sunday. Lent, Monday through Saturday, they are, as the psalmist says, we were called into worship today with Psalm 90. And later on in that psalm, the psalmist tells us that Mondays through Saturday, so to speak, are like a dream. Like grass that is renewed in the morning, and in the morning it flourishes and is renewed. But then in the evening, 
It fades away. It withers. It dies. Lent is designed to shake us out of our lethargy. It's designed to shake us out of our standard workaday mode of existence. Lent is here to sort of get under our skin. It's here to set before us a more heavenly-minded liturgy by which we are to live our lives. If we had that liturgy before our eyes, Monday through Saturday of every week is a Lenten season. And Sunday, that's Easter. That's a heavenly-minded liturgy. Schmemann, once again, he writes, let us stress once more that the purpose of Lent is not to force on us a few formal obligations. I'll stop here. Oftentimes people think this is what's going on in Lent. You have a few more formal obligations. You've got to come to church on Wednesday, the middle of your week. You've got to give up meat on Fridays if you're in the Catholic tradition. I might have to fast. Lent's just giving me a few more formal obligations. Schmemann says, let us stress once more that the purpose of Lent is not to force on us a few formal obligations, but to soften our hearts so that it may open itself to the realities of the Spirit, to the experience of the hidden thirst and hunger for communion with God. You see, if everything in our lives carries on as is, if it's always just the same old, same old, the same pattern that we fall into, we will continually settle in and become perfectly at home here in this life. Those of us who are not openly wounded by a nostalgic desire for another reality will not understand what true repentance is. If you are not wounded by a nostalgic longing for another reality, you will not repent properly. You will not repent with a whole heart, as Joel 2 calls us to do. This season of Lent is an open and public season of repentance. And repentance above everything else, it's a return to the genuine order of things. It's a restoration to proper vision. What I mean by that, that repentance is a return to the genuine order of things, is I mean that sin is destructive to the regular order of things. Sin is chaotic. Sin ruins the proper order of things. One of the most common words in your English Bibles for sin, sin has a couple different words um, that it's taken from in the Greek and the Hebrew, but one of the most common words that is translated as sin in your English Bibles is the word anamos, anamos, a-nomos, a meaning not, nomos meaning the law, anamos is most literally translated then, not sin, but if we wanted to literally translate it, it's more fully translated as lawlessness, against the law. It has often even been translated as, and this might surprise you, suicidal. Anamos is translated often as suicidal. Sin is suicidal. It is a rejection of the law of God. And the law of God is life. Hence, sin is a suicide. It's anti-life. Suicidal to nature itself. Suicidal to nature, we must realize, is sort of the, the fact that sin is suicidal to nature is something that should drive our attentions to this theological sort of foundation for the entire Lenten season. The fact that sin is suicidal 
drives to the root of why the church has always fasted during Lent. I don't think we often get this connection. We fast during Lent because sin is suicidal. Why? Well, in a season of repentance, one might fast because food is intimately tied to life. And sin is the rejection of life. Think for a moment of Adam. Adam, think about his role in relation to fasting. Adam broke the first fast. He ate from the tree. And food is tied to life. Adam's forsaking of the commandments of God, Adam's eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that was a mutilation of life. And all mankind, in our covenant head Adam, rejected a life built on God alone and chose a life by food alone. We chose to live by bread alone when Adam broke his fast. Christ, the second Adam, the greater Adam, he kept his fast in the wilderness. And throughout the whole course of his obedient life, he kept his fast. So here, during Lent, by fasting, which I would encourage each and every one of you to do in some form or another. It doesn't always have to be from food, but I'd encourage the practice. And as Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 6, don't broadcast it on Facebook, but, but fast. So here during Lent, by fasting, we symbolically take up our flag and we plant it in the camp of the true Adam. By fasting, we forsake the path of suicide. We repent and we fast. And by fasting, we symbolically reverse the curse. That's what you're doing when you're fasting. You're symbolically reversing the curse. Some of you may be familiar I mentioned it the other day in one of my Sunday school classes. You may be familiar with the fact that the Eastern Orthodox Church, which has a very, very robust Lenten season, they celebrate communion at every single worship service throughout the week, throughout the entire year. Every service is punctuated by the table. And they call the celebration of the Eucharist, they call it the divine liturgy. There's lots of liturgies, but that's the divine liturgy, the chief liturgy, the thing that all the other liturgies are sort of pointing to, table fellowship with God. So they have it at every service. But during Lent, and Lent only, in their Monday through Saturday services, they take away the divine liturgy. They withhold the table. They don't serve the supper. And you could feel the people, right, if they're used to taking the supper every day. And then all of a sudden, poof, it's gone. You could feel the negation. You could feel the absence of it. And that's because the reason they take it away is because the supper is a feast. The ultimate earthly feast that anticipates our heavenly feast at the table of King Jesus. And Lent is a season of fasting. Fasting and feasting are antithetical to one another. And they ought to be separated. And hence, during the Lenten season, they separate them. Every time we eat at that table, we are at home in heaven. As close to home in heaven as we could possibly be this side of glory. There's no fasting at Easter. Because during Easter, we're at home. We're with Jesus. Jesus tells us pretty much those exact things in Matthew chapter 9. This is what Jesus says. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn 
as long as the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So in Lent, we fast as we put ourselves in that position of longing for the bridegroom who has come, we long for him to return again. And in fasting, that physical hunger that you feel, or if you're fasting from technology or something else, that longing that you have for that thing, it corresponds to a spiritual expectation of having that longing fulfilled. It, it corresponds to the expectation of the approaching joy of being at home at the table. So I want to quickly look at a traditional Lenten text this evening that takes up all of those themes that we were just talking about. And that text is the one on the back of your bulletin once again, Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, 12 through 13. I'll read them once again because it's short. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage. And it's a traditional passage that is used in the Lenten season. And the church, the church preached all over the world. Today, there are saints that are hearing that passage read. It's not the only one that's read on the third Sunday in Lent, or the third Wednesday in the Lenten season, but it's one of the traditional ones. So it's a beautiful passage that the church has for thousands of years, 2,000 years, been reading on this day. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the prophet Joel. We know almost less about him than almost any of the, the, the authors in scripture. We believe that he lived and wrote around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. That is to say, we think he lived post-exile. And the reason that we assume this is because Joel quotes Isaiah and Ezekiel and some of the other exilic prophets. So we think, all right, he comes after that period. Calvin says, in typical Calvin fashion, he, he was never really interested so much in those issues. When exactly did this person write? It didn't bother him that much. He writes, the import of his doctrine, Joel's doctrine, is evident, though his time be obscure and uncertain. Basically saying, hey, his doctrine's there. We know what he's saying in his doctrine. We might not be exactly sure when exactly his life was. And if you've read the book of Joel, it's a short little book, but it can read as quite a terrifying book. And that's because God is quite a terrifying God. He's a God so terrifying that sinless angels shield their face from his glory. If sinless angels shield their face from his glory, how much more so very, very sinful Israel and very, very sinful us. Wicked and depraved man. Now, Joel never once in the entire book accuses Israel of any particular sin. We don't know why God's wrath is turned against them, particularly from the book of Joel. It's one of the reasons it's difficult to place the book at a particular moment. Right? If we knew that this sin had occurred, we could be like, oh, that sin occurred here. This is where I, why Joel is talking to them about that particular sin. But you don't need a, a great theological imagination to imagine some reason why Israel might have offended God. Right? If you reflect on the biblical history at all, you can find plenty of reasons for God's divine judgment. So the book of Joel starts in Joel chapter 1 and up to the middle of Joel chapter 2 with this very, very severe talk of an impending cataclysmic judgment. 
it begins with this prophetic lamentation from Joel. He talks and prophesies about this massive plague of locusts that will come and overwhelm the people of God. And the locusts, they're a symbolic judgment. And they're also, to the attentive reader, when you hear about a plague of locusts, they should draw your mind back to the plagues in the Exodus. Right? They're one of the plagues in Egypt. So the prophet is warning God's people of an imminent, impending, cataclysmic judgment. The axe is right now laid at the root of the tree. Something's coming right now. This big, big time judgment. But Joel, he did not intend to terrify the people without reason. But he intends to encourage them and spur them on to repentance. Look at the text, Joel 2.12. Yet even now, declares the Lord. Those are beautiful words. Yet even now, declares the world, Lord. Return to me with all your hearts, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Those are very, very comforting words there. A comforting message from Joel in the midst of this prophetic warning of an impending judgment. Return to me. God is life. All life comes from him. And anything that would maintain and keep life must come back to him. Right? This is what I've talked about from the pulpit before. My father has mentioned it as well. This is what the church has often called the Exodus Redditus scheme. That all God is life, so any life must exit from him. And anything that would maintain having life must Redditus return back to him. Exit from God, return to God. That's all of scripture right there in two words. Exodus, Redditus. And the text says, even now, even during Lent, when you have come face to face with the realities of your sin, even now, when your sins are ever before you, when you are aware of your need of healing and rebirth and forgiveness, even now, for those of us who have been sitting in these very pews for many, many years and see no signs of sanctification in our lives, Even for those of us who week after week come here and we see no spiritual growth. Even now, even now as I stand here administering the word to you and daily have to deal with all of the evil that is in here. Even now, cry out to God. Return to him. Don't delay. That's what the text is telling us. Even now, don't wait until tomorrow. Don't wait until you get over that fight with your wife or until you fix that rocky relationship with your child. God does not call saints to return to him. God calls broken, recalcitrant, feeble, wayward sinners to return to him and he turns them into saints. And how do we return? What does the text tell us? Our text says, return to me with all your heart. We are to return to the Lord with our whole heart. We are called to dive deep into the waters of God's forgiveness and his mercy. We are called to remember our baptism and be drowned in the grace of God. Now, to return to God with all your heart, that isn't some sort of perfect repentance. I think the text is often read that way. Oh, I have to return with my whole heart. So until my repentance is perfect, it won't be accepted by God. Couldn't be further from the case. To return to God with your whole heart 
is juxtaposed to returning to God with part of your heart or with part of your affections, with your affections placed on the wrong things. Right? We have that problem all the time. Right? Our affections are oftentimes placed on the wrong things or the wrong things to the wrong degree. Sometimes they're placed on good things, but maybe there's too much of our affections placed on those things at the wrong time. Our affections are misshapen. They're misproportioned. We, like Adam in the garden, we think for some reason when we return to God to repent, we think that we can hide from him. Right? We return half-heartedly to God. Right? If you think about your own prayer life even, right? You hide things from God as if, you could, as if Adam could hide from him in the garden. God calls us to return with our whole heart to him. But we don't like to do that. We return like the young St. Augustine. You might recall the young St. Augustine in his confessions. He famously prays to the Father, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. Give me ch-. That's a half-hearted return to God. That's a, eh, don't completely kill the sin in me. I still kind of enjoy that sin. That's what we do. We have half-hearted returns to God. But we ought not be like the young Augustine. And we ought not be like Cain. Right? Cain brings an offering of his heart. That seems good, right? But it's not good enough. We ought to be like Abel, who did not just bring his heart, but he brought his best, his whole heart. We are to bring our undivided loyalty and place it in the camp of the one whose spilled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Our passage and this entire Lenten season is a call to repent in a real, complete, body and soul kind of way. Wailing and crying from the soul. Fasting from the body. So that we, dying to those two parts of the unified human, the soul and the body, we might rise again, forgiven and remade. We cry out to the Lord with a whole heart, as a whole unified, infleshed soul. We fast from the body. We cry out from the soul. We return to God with our whole hearts. And we are remade. Verse 13 says that we should rend our hearts, tear our hearts, and not our garments. Rending your garment is pretty easy. It's easy to put on a show of repentance. It's easy to walk around downtrodden. It's quite easy, I'd imagine, to whitewash a tomb. It's easy to paint over rotting beams in your house. But tearing the walls down and rebuilding the house, clearing out the decomposing carcasses, clearing those out of the tombs, that's nasty work. But that return, that work, Returning to God with a torn heart. It should not frighten us. Because look at the text. Look who the text says we are returning to. The text says, return to the Lord, your God. Right? We do not return to a generic, powerful deity. But we return to our God. God with us and God for us. A God who the text tells us is gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. People of Westminster, saints of God, even now, rend your hearts and not your garments and come home. Return to your God. Amen.